nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 8th of May and we have a stellar show lined up for you today. We're speaking to an amazing author and academic coach about the best revision strategies for students during exam season. We also have a phenomenal leader discussing conflict resolution, forgiveness and reconciliation skills. Jam-packed show today. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London. This is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. exam season and I know there's going to be lots of people especially year 11 and year 13 teachers who are very very busy right now and um, my first guest today is Claire Ford. Claire is an author, speak coach and tutor who is passionate about ensuring that children are switched on learners accessing their natural gifts abilities and talents to unlock their potential and live purposefully. Claire supports families around the world and has developed the core, clever and quantum curricula in the Switched On Academy. Claire, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Sylvia. I am great. It is lovely to be here. Thank you so much. No, thank you. You brightened up with my morning this morning. <laughs> the conversation we had before the show was brilliant. So, um, Claire, can you explain what you do to for our listeners um, and explain who you are as well? Yes, of course. Thank you so much. So, uh, yes, Claire Ford, um, I'm an academic coach. I used to be teaching in mainstream uh, school um, for about 12 years or so. And then recently I've um, come out of mainstream teaching and have set up as an academic coach, um, tutoring and mentoring young people um, through my academy, which is an online academy that I set up really uh, because of the pandemic to help those parents who were struggling at home with you know having lockdown learning and all of that stuff going on and um, I realized that I could put my uh, my knowledge and expertise you know to better use really in helping families navigate all those complications which happened uh, two or three years ago and um, yeah so since then I've been uh, teaching a global audience um, using the online learning platform um, through my own academy. That sounds great, um, Claire. Now, students always say to me, obviously, because I'm still in the classroom, that they don't know how to revise. And Professor Donlowski points out that 
teaching students how to study is just as important as teaching them content. Um, and he did a, he reviewed a, a thousand scientific studies looking at 10 of the most popular um, revision techniques and eight out, out of 10 did not work. So, um, you know, he, he goes on about these different types of revision strategies. Can you explain to us which revision strategies don't work effectively, first of all? Yes, definitely. Um, we, we can definitely talk about that. And this is something um, which I think is so important um, is actually learning how to learn. You know, it's not just the content, but it's learning how to learn, learning how to remember that information and, of course, apply it, whether it's to exam uh, situations or not. Otherwise, what is the point of learning the information in the first place? Right. So that's that's certainly a conversation that deserves you know, perhaps looking into more at a different time. Um, but yes, when you're learning, um, you know, in our acing our exams clinics that we run, we talk about different revision techniques. And I often start with the children with, you know, what it isn't. And they're really surprised because it's all the things that they have been doing. <laughs> For example, you know, it's not just about writing stuff down and um, copying it out of textbooks. Um, it's not just about using post-it notes dotted all over the house, um, you know, and in the fridge with, with your quotation on for your English literature. And it's not just about, you know, writing things out beautifully and highlighting them in colour-coordinated ways to make you think that you're uh, on top of things. It's, of course, about actually applying those things, making that knowledge stick in a way that you can apply it and use it and tweak it to get the best um, exam result that that, that that student deserves. So when I tell them it's not about those things, then they start to panic because they're like, oh, well, that's what we've been doing. <laughs> I'm but, laughing because, Claire, I'm sitting here thinking I know where I went wrong in life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think the thing is, there is very little time um, in the curriculum that's being taught in schools for that application and that depth of knowledge, you know, and also I think sometimes um, there isn't time with revision, like we tend to work in blocks of this subject, then this, this topic, then this topic, then this topic. And there isn't necessarily that time and scope for discussing why things are interwoven, how they link together, um, how one thing's happened because of another thing, you know, and so this is what I love doing in my academy is actually having the time and space to make these connections, to make these links. And that is how you, you develop mastery. That's how students develop their confidence to, to sometimes think outside the box a little and bring in information and knowledge that they know. For example, a student of mine um, messaged me the other day and she said, oh my gosh, she said, in my mock, she said, I got a level nine in history and I'm like okay I'm thinking well I don't teach you history so why are you telling me this right and she said it's because I applied the essay technique that you gave me in my English to my history answer you oh, see wow. and I'm like well hallelujah <laughs> because English isn't just for an English exam like Use your English, your knowledge of English and planning out things in all the other subjects as well. Okay, so it's just the planning out that you're talking about, the structuring and how you're applying that from one context to another. That's it, right? 
Uh, well, it's the planning out and applying from one context to another. But I think it's also about um, having that that sense of um, actually what we call metacognition. I think there was a, a guy called McCabe in 2011 who talked about metacognition and about how you actually apply and link previously learned content to what you're doing now. So you're building up these blocks. And of course, we know as teachers, when we're doing our planning, that's what we're doing. When we when we start going back to school in September, we already know where we're taking those students in June, right? Yeah. And we know that there are certain building blocks that have to be in place for them to learn that higher level content later on in the school year. But what perhaps isn't happening is that we're not linking it back um, and so in some ways I say to students well you're not getting away with this because I know I've taught you this which you need to understand this and we've gone through that and so let's go back to that if you haven't remembered it and link it and then they're like oh why has no one ever told me this before and it's like well we have but perhaps we haven't made those links for you. And so just to summarise that, obviously highlighting doesn't work, rereading doesn't work, summarisation and sticky notes, cramming and distractions, we already know all of that, but there are parents who listen into our shows and some students, uh, I know some of my students follow me as well, um, that aren't sure about what revision strategies to use. Um, Obviously, Brown et al. said at that time, said uh, during their research when I was uh, looking up, it said we need to strengthen the retrieval capacity of our students and if we manage to store information in our long-term memory so they can retrieve it again and again. So retrieval is a, a big part of this. Yeah. Um, Claire, can you, going back to um, what Professor Donlowski said before as well, he said the same thing, practice testing and distributed practice. Can you just go through the revision techniques that do work effectively? Yes, yes. So I think, first of all, um, it's really important to have a plan, right? It's really important to have a timetable. Like, I think Benjamin Franklin um, said, and I love this quote, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And um, so obviously, we all know people can wing stuff, right? But first of all, get organized and think about, okay, how much time have I actually got left? How much time do I need for each subject and um, and really plan it out, planning in breaks and all of that, which we'll go into in a bit more detail later on as well. So have the plan and then be very, very um, intentional about what you're doing in that plan. So if, for example, I'm an English specialist. So if, for example, somebody's thinking, oh, I'm going to learn quotes. Well, why are you learning them? Be savvy, right, with the quotes. Think, is there a quote that I can learn which shows, which highlights not only the context, but also the theme and something to do with the character? So you can reuse the quote in three different ways, depending on how the question comes up. And then really start to practice those past questions, because I think that there is something, um, you know, that's really important that students understand that they have to actually answer the question that's been asked and not just answer it in a way that they've revised right so it's always about linking back to the question that's been asked and thinking am i answering this with this point am i answering this with this evidence so having that past paper practice little and often 
And I know that many, many teachers at schools are holding revision clinics. They're on the other end of an email. You know, I know for my son's teachers, he said, well, just practice that plenary, just practice the conclusion at the end of your answer and send that off to me and I can mark it for you and give you some feedback. So really, I would say for students who are listening, little and often is key looking at those past papers to understand the wording and to see how you can plan out your answer to really hone in on what's being asked and then send some practice examples over to your teachers and they will absolutely do their best to give you some feedback and point you in the right direction. And it may just be a couple of little tweaks where you're linking back to the question or you're popping in a bit of evidence that's a bit more relevant to the question, which will get those marks up a bit more. So I do something similar in business studies and I call it unhooking the question. And literally it's basically, I give them a standard template of what each section um, means. So we're actually, unraveling what the question is so looking at the key exam words command words what do they mean um it's about thinking about um what subject content um and subject vocab you're going to use in your answer uh, and then actually uh, laying out the answer as well re- uh, structuring it out um and again it's a it's a case of like you said committing it understanding what's up the questions asking and then committing that to memory as well now can you just go through um, the different techniques? Because there's quite a few techniques like retrieval practice, knowledge organisers, um, flashcards. Can you just go through some of those um, techniques so that you can explain to our listeners how you use them? Yes. Yeah, so um, so in order to actually get the information in there, which is slightly different to practising the questions, there are lots of different things that you can do. But um, before I go into that, I just want to um, to talk about for, for, for a second or two um, how Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence is, because you see the techniques that, um, that we're going to discuss then they may work for some people and not for others. Or there may be multiple techniques that work for one person, but not for somebody else. So first of all, it's really important that you don't compare and despair, right? Where you see one person doing amazing stuff and they're like, oh, I've totally nailed this. I've got it. And you're like, I just can't get this into my head, you know, because everybody is different. And what Howard Gardner talks about in his theory of multiple intelligences is um, basically there are eight He talks about verbal linguistic. So for verbal linguistic learners, um, perhaps just writing stuff down and drawing mind maps is not going to work for you. So you're going to need things like mnemonics, which are going to help you to uh, remember things. You're going to maybe need to have oral things where you're recording stuff on your phone or you're using music and clapping and rhythm. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with uh, some of the stuff that you're talking about because uh, Alex Quigley have said that as well. Uh, carry on. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. So so for, for our um, verbal linguistic uh, people, they're going to need to have, um, you know, songs, music, not music in the background, but creating their own little jingles. And I mean, I remember when I was revising for my O-level Latin, that's how old I am, um, I had to walk around the house quoting bits from Caesar's Gallic Wars so that I could remember it. I had to literally march around. So that's the kinesthetic bodily um, intelligence, 
link that with the um, link that with the verbal linguistic one to make it go in my head. Right. So basically, at the end of the day, you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, if you're a logical mathematical thinker, then, you know, lots of mind maps and pictures and highlighting, it's not going to work for you. You're not going to necessarily see that jumping out. You're going to maybe have to have flow charts or you're going to have have to have um, a very logical list, maybe with boxes that lead into different ways of doing things. So maybe you would have your post-its up in your room, but they would be set up in a way that makes logical sense for you to uh, go from point A to point B to point C. So if you're a logical mathematical thinker, you're going to want to do things in a different way to the verbal linguistic thinker. If you're spatial and visual, that's where the mind maps, the spider diagrams, the different color codes, all of that comes in as long as you don't get too carried away with the art element and you actually make sure you're focusing on the information <laughs> that you're trying to remember, right? It's no good at just looking beautiful if you can't remember anything. Um, but those visual cues and prompts are going to be the things that stick in your mind in that memory palace. Uh, you're going to be able to link, oh, you know, um, a certain type of biology, you know, the heart is all the pink postcards or something, right? That's how you're going to remember that. Um, and then, yeah, and then and then also we have naturalistic learners. Now, they may work better being outside. They may work better, um, you know, sitting outside in nature or being able to connect in a certain way with that to stimulate their thinking skills. OK, great. So just to um, summarise some of that, um when we're looking at Alex Quigley's top tips, memory for learning, yeah. um, we've got active learning there. So, for example, it says that um, it means that you're thinking hard and you're not passively receiving information. Yeah. Um, so rather than just rereading notes, you summarise the key ideas and you shape the content in a new meaningful pattern. Yes. Um, you also mentioned using song or rhythm and um, it's basically making sure that you can like you said, make up your own songs and sing them verbatim. Um, and you can also chant to remember concepts as well. Um, another thing that you mentioned was Memory Palace. Um, and it's a it's basically a mnemonic device or a memory aid, which improves one's ability to remember and recall information uh, quickly. And obviously, mnemonics, I used to use them when I was, a, when I was at school and I was a child. Uh, and it was a brilliant one because um, I still remember my very elegant mum just sent us nine pizzas which was learning the planets uh, in space <laughs> which was which was obviously a very basic one but I'm sure that there were many more but that was just an example of one of the ones that we did now I'm just going to quickly go back to um, Alex Quigley's uh, top 10 tips he also talks about students teaching students so giving yes. students opportunities to take over the teaching because I've mm. always said it myself if you are able to explain something Thing, complicated in a simpler way to somebody else then you are understanding what you're talking about and I yes. think that that is a very good technique to use as well um, and then eventually they can deliver that to the class as well yes. now I'm going to come back to retrieval practice um, retrieval practice quizzing so making sure that um, you are quizzing and testing uh, regularly um, mm. and when I'm in the classroom for those listeners who've just joined in um, Claire's um, 
an online uh, has an online academy and I'm still in the classroom um we normally start with a do now or a starter activity which is like a quiz um or something to test their knowledge um from the previous lesson um and it's just a form of retrieval basically just to ensure that they understand uh, what they've been learning as they're going along and sometimes it can be repeated and sometimes it can be spaced as well so you've got spaced retrieval um distributed practice sorry and practice testing as well so those are some of the the ones that he's talked about he's also talked about flashcards which is what you said yeah. and um one of the mistakes that students make and if you are listening is that don't just have facts everywhere just make sure you've got questions and answers because that's the best way of testing your knowledge um, yeah there's a there's a fabulous online platform which um yeah. Uh, a student of mine showed me the other day. Um, I can't. I can't remember exactly what it is now because I, I didn't have time to look it up. But um, he was literally making flashcards in our English lesson, um, and that was the thing. You have to write one question on the front, and then you have the answer on the back. And you can build up a whole lot of online flashcards if you don't want to actually physically do them. Some people prefer to actually physically write them. You know that helps your memory as well. That helps with that link if you're actually writing them out, but you can create yeah. them online as well. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of apps. Uh, one's called Quizzes. That's quite a good one. Um, and there's uh, Edpuzzle. There's quite a few apps out there that you can use. Um, even if you wanted to create your own quiz and test yourself, you've also got Kahoot as well. Mm. Um, and just to finish off uh, Alex Quigley's 10 tips, he's also said that there's Deconstruct and Rebuild as well, where you're uh, essentially taking information and reconstructing it and uh, putting it into uh, another way. Uh, yes. into another to make sure that it's uh, put into another way now um, I love I love these concept maps because that enables mm -hmm. especially with that peer learning what we've done is we've done online we've done screen sharing and yeah. people have um you know talked through their mind maps and their concept maps as they've been doing that peer-to-peer -peer learning so like everybody can do their revision in their own way and then explain it to their peers using their method and I think that that's that's uh very powerful um yeah it is because i think um it, it talks about uh pictures and Im images memory by association i think that's slightly different to the mind maps but what it's talking about is using concrete images to store complex information so for example if you've got really complex uh subject content um you can have uh different information provided uh, at that time and obviously you've got exam buddies as well when you're doing group revision as well so collaborative retrieval is a proven memory strategy as well. Now, if we go back to some of the things that uh, some of the other revision techniques we were talking about, have you ever tried Cornell note taking? Um, yes, and I and I actually model this when I'm, um, you know, doing like an interactive whiteboard where I'm not necessarily going through a presentation where I'm saying everything that's on the slides or I'm asking the students to say everything on the slides. It's really about um, writing down those salient points in a way that absolutely makes sense um, and then sort of talking around them. So you're not writing everything down. You're writing down the things that, that are the key points that you have to make and, um, and then adding on a bit of information as well so that at the end um, 
you can talk. It's about making those links again. Sometimes less is more. So a few words can be a whole point. So you could just, you know, have your overall thing, you make your first point, and then maybe you have a little sub point, or you have a picture or a quote that is a trigger for the teaching point that you're making. And I think that this is also helping students when they're, um, before they're going on to further education, where they're going to have to make their own kind of note taking. And of course, you can't say everything, you can't write down everything that the, uh, that the professor is, is telling you. You have to understand how to just take down those salient points and be able to, um, talk back and reflect on the larger point that was being made now thank you very much for that claire if i'm if i'm looking back to some of the things that donlosky said I, i'm going to go through some of these things with you claire he said that retrieval practice is one of the most effective ways of learning which leads to fluency so basically trying to recall something from memory requires mental strain and effort which is why low stake testing is uh, better which is what we talked about before um, and quizzing, obviously, as well. The graphics organizers, which is which are the mind maps that you were talking about, uh, allows you to show uh, their thinking and understanding of key ideas and topics from memory. We've already discussed the flashcards with a concept uh, at the front and the answer on the back, and then they can check by self-quizzing themselves uh, and maybe combining writing with visual visual illustration. Um, Cornell note taking. An excellent way of getting students to think metacognitively by McCabe, um, asking questions, noting key terms and summarising the content. Um, again, it's good for self-testing so that you can piece together previously learned information. And then spaced retrieval, which is spacing out learning and revising um, material as often as possible for embedding knowledge and understanding. And obviously, um, they say that the optimal intervals for retaining information, say for one week, should be, be between one or two days, uh, for six months, every three weeks, and for one year, every four weeks. And then for teachers, um, little and often is important. Daily low stakes testing, weekly reviews and cumulative testing as well helps with long term memory. Um, we've also discussed past questions. Students need to practice different examination questions um, well spaced over time. Now, the reason why I've gone through all of that again is because um, these were this is how the techniques fared. So when Dunlosky did his um, his research, he did say that practice testing, self-testing to check knowledge and using flashcards was high. So a really effective revision technique. Um, distributed practice, spreading out study over time is also high. Um, interleaved practice, switching between different kinds of problems whilst you're revising is moderate. Self-explanation, how a problem was solved is moderate. Summarizing or writing summaries of text is low. Highlighting, mm. underlining is low. Imagery, forming mental pictures while reading or listening is low. And rereading is low. What are your mm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I think that um, people spend a lot of time on those on those ones which do have uh, the lower the lower score when it comes to the effectiveness, because um, doing the ones which are more effective, well, they are harder, right? They are harder and they really, you know, they really require some resilience and some perseverance and some discipline. 
Whereas the ones which are easier, you're like, you can trick yourself into thinking you're revising effectively because you're creating some of those things that you just mentioned. But for the ones which are really the most effective, they are harder. They require discipline. They require time. They require um, um, a willingness to go the extra mile um, in order to get the result that you want. So, so which think, ones do you use in the academy? So with the uh, we, we have the timetable, which is really important, I think, to make sure that you've already got that intentional time set aside. And then what we do is we uh, we definitely look at the questions we look at the questions whenever we're revising anything. We're like, well, why are we revising this? What, what, how's it going to be used? And what's the point of it in the first place, right? And then we, um, I refer back to the mark scheme to make sure that the students absolutely know the point of what it is that they're revising and that they're writing and what it is that they're being tested on um, so that they know, okay, this is a low level answer because this is a higher level answer because so that they get used to thinking like that. They get used to thinking a bit like the examiner themselves, right? Um, and they understand that, oh, just saying, um, you know, the poet used a simile. Well, well done for knowing simile, but it's not a high level answer. <laughs> So they understand, they begin to understand. So we link it with the past questions. I think that's very, very important. And that they start to explore their own answers and use that peer on peer approach to uh, to look at, OK, why is that a good answer? How can I make it better? What is it that that's being marked? What is it that's being asked? making sure that we're doing that. So it's always about coming back to the question that's being asked and to the past papers. For us, that's what we do. Okay, that's brilliant. And um, for me, I, I guess we use a lot of practice testing within the classroom because obviously we give multiple uh, strategies. Uh, when I'm teaching my students in the classroom, I, I give them a variety of options. Um, but practice testing involves self-testing uh, and testing on material. And distributed practice is when uh, we've got a schedule of um, practice that spreads out over a longer period of time so when I when I wrote my curriculum I made sure that I had plenty of uh, plenty of retrieval uh, and interleaved and space practice um, when we were designing the curriculum originally uh, and so um, now we're doing revision within my classroom and it's working really well students um, retrieval is brilliant They're, we're using a, a variety of techniques quizzes um, past exam questions uh, and it's good. It's good practice for them. Um, there are times, um, I'm, I'm sure there are other teachers in the same boat right now with year 11s and year 13s. If you remember, this is the year group that were still, um, you know, in lockdown. And so it has been much harder for us, Claire. Uh, in order to try and get them through the these exams. Um, one of the things that I've had a problem with and I've struggled and I'm pretty sure other teachers are struggling with the same thing and maybe you can give us some idea from what, for what you do in your academy, um, motivation levels. Um, yeah. You know, the, they're really low at the moment and it, partly, partly it's to do with the pandemic and partly it's to do with the fact that I think they're switched off. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. 
Absolutely. And um, this is why I call my academy switched on. <laughs> because so many parents were coming to me saying, you know, my, my kid is so unmotivated and depressed and anxious and switched off and isn't interested in anything. And um, so, you know, what what I uh, can, I mean, from, from my perspective, what I've done is, is change things around slightly and um, you know, change the focus, right? Shift the spotlight from the tip of the iceberg, which is where we're looking at the results, right? If you imagine an iceberg and you're seeing the tip above the ocean and that's what we're all focused on. Well, what did you get? You know, what mark did you get? What result did you get? And actually what I've done in my academy is switch, switch the focus. It's almost like turn the iceberg on its head and go, well, let's just put the results to one side for a moment. And let's look at everything else that's going on. And so um, so what we do, I, I've come up with a learning method, which I'll um, explain the three pillars very briefly. But basically, the, the key that I have found that has unlocked the brilliance and unlocked that motivation, that intrinsic motivation in the students, is actually to put their emotional well-being and their personal development at the forefront of learning. And that leads to the academic success. Now, I appreciate at this time in the academic year, you know, that's not necessarily a practical thing to be doing. But as a longer term strategy, um, I would highly recommend it. And we've seen incredible results from our students in, in a really short space of time. Now, the, um, the learning method has three pillars. And they're this. And this is what I've, I've realized is a way of getting students switched back on and motivated again. The first pillar is clarity. And what I mean by that is that the learning has to be meaningful and relevant to the student. And this is where I may get into some hot water with some of your listeners. But if we're all just jumping through hoops because we're part of a system and that the, the system has no relevance or meaning to the students who are in it, they are going to be switched off learners. They're going to be people pleasing and going through the motions to just get the results for a reason that they don't really understand. That again is a conversation for another day. But what I've discovered is if you get some clarity around why are we doing this, right? What is it going to help you to achieve? Um, you know, I do a course for teens called Discovering Your Path. And the, and the parents have said that this has really helped them re-engage with their learning in the classroom because they have then a hope for the future. They have a wider perspective. They understand where this exam season fits into the broader picture of their life. They understand why it's okay to not get, you know, nine, um, you know, nine grade nines, right? If they want to go on and do drama, they don't need to get a level nine in biology. The biology teacher at school might disagree, but from the perspective of the student, it's like, okay, let's focus on your strengths, your attributes, your talents, your gifts, your visions, your passion, your mission. I talk about all of this with my students and get them to, to reintegrate that, to see the bigger picture in their life and then to go, oh, okay. So if I want to go on and do this, let's reverse engineer that and say, this is why I need my maths GCSE. So this is why I need to plan it out. And this is why I'm going to sit down and do X, Y, or Z. But until they've got that intrinsic motivation, which links to something that is meaningful and relevant to them personally, 
They're just doing it because the teacher says so, the head teacher says so, the governors say so, or the government says so. And to be, to be honest with you, Sabia, that is not a good enough reason for most of our students. And I think that's what the problem is, because I think sometimes we do as teachers and educators get so involved in um, trying to get everyone their their grades or the you know trying to make sure that they're they're learning to the best of their ability that sometimes we forget that there are some students who just don't want to learn um and it's very hard and it's not just um it's not just in disadvantaged schools i mean i visited a a school that's supposed to be outstanding um and they have warm strict behavior and uh you know all, all the latest i think it was a, a it, it was quite a well known academy i'm not going to mention the name on air um and even the head teacher there said that they had problems with um intrinsic motivation that staff were doing all the work and it was really hard to get students uh, to engage. And so for me, um, I think the important thing is what can we do to help, what can teachers and parents do to help students um, manage the pressure of exams, for example, because that is a factor that affects exams. Yes. Well, that links nicely to uh, the second pillar that I have in my learning method, which is curiosity. And so it's exactly that. It's actually asking the student, you know, well, what can we do? What can we do to help you? And it's also about encouraging that student to get into the growth zone, not just the learning zone, but to actually to get into their growth zone and go, well, this isn't working for me. How else is uh, it's using that magic word else, right? What else can we do? How else could you learn that? Who else could you work with? Where else could you look for the information? If the information that's been given to you on this particular website or by this particular teacher isn't landing, okay, you know, take responsibility for your learning and think about, well, where else can I find it? How else can I consume it in a way that works for me, for my learning intelligence? You know, so it's about stepping into that zone of curiosity and thinking about using everything. You know, I mean, Google is at the tips of everybody's fingertips. We have a global classroom. Your classroom isn't just nine to three, you know, with with Mr. or Mrs. ABC in front of you for those subjects. You know, students and parents need to take on board the fact that they have got that responsibility, but they've also got that um, that curiosity at their fingertips and think, well, this isn't working or I'm not getting on with this teacher or I don't understand this module. How else can I find the information? So that for me is, is a really important key. And for parents to be interested, to ask questions, to uh, create a calm home environment, even if actually from an adult perspective, everything's falling around around the ears, you know, business-wise, relationship-wise or whatever, your team doesn't need to be taking that all on board right now. So um, environment is key as well. Um, and, you know, thinking about that intrinsic motivation, what is it that that teenager is actually going to be get, able to go on and do with these qualifications? How relevant are they really? Look into that bigger picture and just focus on the things that absolutely really matter, the needle movers, um, you know, and, and let some of the other things go. So that would be my advice. And I think that that leads into that my third pillar, which is collaboration. So it's about collaborating 
you know, for students who are listening, right? Parents and teachers, we are on your side, right? Educators and tutors are on your side. Collaborate. Let's, you're not alone, right? I think it can be a very isolating experience right now for young people. And especially for those who didn't um, have, you know, proper schooling during the pandemic and who are coming up to the first time to taking their exams. But even with, uh, with, with young people my son's age who are taking A-levels who never took their GCSEs. This is the first formal exam for our sixth form students as well, right? And so there's even more riding on that for them, you know, with getting into universities and things like that. And so the pressure is really on. And it's about really making sure that our young people are mentally um, healthy, that they are emotionally healthy, that they're building resilience, but that they're not on their own. So it's allowing them to connect with whoever, whichever adults are going to support them. It might not be their parents. It might be an uncle or an auntie or a friend's parent, for example, or, you know, to allow them to go to see heads of house, heads of year, um, you know, counsellors. I mean, the number of teenagers I have coming to me suffering with social anxiety and anxiety in general um you know is just crazy and we need to we need this is the pandemic that was going on before the pandemic but it's been heightened you know teenage anxiety and depression is on the rise and it's not something uh to just brush under the carpet because it's exam season so um it's about having a calm environment and being open to discussion, collaboration, and to support our young people by asking, how else can we help you? Yes, and I guess um, you're 100% right about the pandemic. I, I do see some of my students um, a bit stressed out. Uh, some of them are completely apathetic, and that's purely because, obviously, when you're in a classroom and in the situation there are, they are in. Um, I think some of them have given up, uh, and we are trying very hard to motivate them, but there's only so much you can do, um, especially if there isn't uh, parental engagement on the other side either. Um, how can parents help their child prepare for the exams? Well, obviously, you know, think about minimising distractions, help with revision if you can and support your child to achieve so um, there are still parents out there that do allow their children to be on the mobile phone um, on the laptops uh, you know I get parents calling me all the time to complain that their children are on the laptop or they're always on their mobile phone and they're not doing any revision and parents are stressed out as well so I think you need to uh, I think you know parents need to try you know take accountability for that and mm -hmm. and uh, you know take those those things away uh, which are distracting them and then you know maybe use them at a, a later time or give them at the end of the day after they've done their revision yeah. um Parents can also help with revision. So, you know, help them, you know, using retrieval practice, give them answers to question, give them questions, question and test them. Um, maybe use flashcards, maybe the multiple choice or essay questions. Um, and also you can even look at the past paper questions from the exam boards and look at the answers as well to help support them. Yeah, it's about getting well. involved, isn't it? It's about getting involved and being, being part of the process rather than just a kind yeah. of onlooker and just moaning at them that oh you know you're on your phone well yes maybe they're on the phone but if you've been involved you'd realize that maybe they've done four hours of revision and they're just taking a brain break and actually connecting with friends and possibly even talking about their revision in the snapchat in the um snapchat or the whatsapp group anyway 
yeah. And essentially, I think you know you've got to you've got to remember that a child's achievement is demonstrated through high parental expectations. Because I mm. think I think sometimes um, you know it depends on what context you're in. But if you are working in a disadvantaged school and you haven't got parental engagement, it it does become much harder to try and get those results as well. Um, and I think I think it's. Uh, it's something that you know you have to think about very carefully if you are a new teacher and you're listening in you do have to think about carefully which context you do want to work in because that does affect your normal day-to-day teaching and your exam results as well um Okay, so how can teachers help uh, prepare for exams or teach multiple strategies, help them to cope with setbacks? How do we manage the pressure of time? Uh, Sorry, how do we manage the pressure of exams? Well, firstly, you know, I always tell my students, Claire, that they should get a good night's sleep, um, making sure that they don't stay up late cramming beforehand Mm. because that's not beneficial. And sleep deprivation, I know when I haven't slept, it's really, really bad for me. Um, It's poorer poorer concentration poorer memory performance uh, and poorer exam performance as well um make sure you remind yourself of your previous best so make sure you um visualize when you were last good at what you were doing so that you can use the same methods uh, and prepare for that as well um on the morning of an exam make sure you eat breakfast we say Mm. this not just for the fun of it but it's because there is research that demonstrates that if you don't have breakfast it can have detrimental effects on a student's performance um and it does lead to a reduction in memory and lowers student concentration levels um avoid anxious students yes i remember <laughs> i remember i used to have some friends who used to come out of exams and said oh my god i did so awful i'm not gonna pass i'm not gonna yeah. pass and that kind of stressed me out yeah. so i you know make sure you uh, avoid those kind of people um and also sometimes people um people lie about how much uh, revision and how much work they've done behind the scenes anyway so don't don't believe what your friends are saying to you um deep breathing um yeah you know slowing down your breathing making sure that you're in a a state where you can control your emotions and the situation you're in so when it comes to um when it comes to well-being i mean obviously after the pandemic people have been exercising a lot more you know they you know people are allowed to see their family and friends making sure they're having enough food making sure they're sleeping properly how can we how can we make our students resilient and cope with the setbacks in their revision and exams yes so i love that so um just a little acronym um which which isn't mine actually you can google it um there's an amazing um well-being coach who came up with this just for students who are listening to remember is shed s-h-e-d and these are basically four key elements which will help people to uh remain healthy even during times of high stress and it's basically similar to what you've said sabia so s is the sleep making sure you get at least eight hours sleep and of course that means turning off your phone or any uh, device at least an hour before you want to fall asleep. That's really important. Um, The H is hydration, so drinking enough water, upping your water intake, um, making sure that you take in a bottle of water in a clear plastic bottle um, to sip during your exam, especially if it's a really long exam. To keep your brain hydrated helps it to to work and to function. E is the exercise, so making sure 
that you go, um, that you do at least 10 to 20 minutes exercise a day, even if that's just walking around the block or going up to the end of the road and back. Um, you know, you don't have to go to the gym for eight hours or anything. Um, but um, so S, H, E and D is diet. So making sure that with those sugar highs and lows that, you know, you you think about taking into school some more nutritional snacks, you know, fruit or uh, a mixture of nuts and things like that, dried fruits, rather than just having, you know, crisps and sugary drinks, because otherwise during exams, especially a long exam, um, you know, especially with the A-levels, they're quite long. Um, you can have those energy highs and lows during the exam. And so, you know, eating a banana at break time or something like that is actually much, much better for you than, uh, than chocolate uh, because, you know, that banana will release energy over a longer period of time and keep your sugar levels stable. So that's just a very quick quick acronym to help people to kind of remember um, some some of the things that, that you spoke into as well. And then regarding uh, becoming resilient, I think the point is that um, it's about accepting that, that accepting that change happens. Um, it's about, you know, things are different to how they were before the pandemic. Um, taking charge, deciding that you are in the driving seat, you are responsible for your learning, you are responsible for your future, you are responsible for the decisions you're making right now, and that yes, there's support around you, but if you're choosing not to show up for yourself, there's not a lot that other people can do about that, right? So it's about actually taking charge and deciding, I'm going to be the author of my own book of life, I'm not going to let just, you know, the government or whoever write it for me, right? So I think that's really important. And, you know, if there are setbacks, if you have a, a poor result, or if you have, you think you've done really badly, like literally put it behind you and step into a new frame of mind and move on, keep moving forwards and you know, make sure that you're ready for your next exam. Um, and this is why it's really important to not hang around with toxic people, negative people, anxious people. You know, if you're in a WhatsApp group and everybody's moaning and groaning and creating this, this kind of, uh, zone of anxiety like just silence it put it on you don't have to leave and create another whole social dilemma but just just put it on silent just put the notifications on silent you don't need that stay in your lane don't compare yourself with other people this is your journey this is your journey through life these exams are just a stepping stone you know you can always retake them look at that wider perspective put things into perspective and just take some breaths, you know, connect with nature, go outside, feel the sun on your face, come back and just start again with a different frame of mind. Thank you very much, Claire. And just to finish off, um, the student room recommends 15 to 20 hours per week for revision. And um, a, a head teacher recommend, well, a former head teacher of a, a very well-known school recommends seven hours of revision per day. But I think students need to experiment what works for them in terms of how many hours a day they should spend revising. Uh, and yes, do all of the things that Claire has just said during the breaks, um, even if it involves just going out for a short 
short walk. And uh, just to let you know that music does not help with revision um, and it can hinder the learning of complex information and damage later recall as it competes for your attention and distracts you. Claire, thank you so much. I have we've run we've run out of time because I've got another interview coming on uh, next. Thank you so much for your time and giving us those different strategies. Um, what's next for you? Oh, thank you so much. So, uh, so yes. So, in the half term, I'm running a a little author's quest for younger learners to uh, to write, illustrate, edit, and publish their very own book in just a week. And in the summer, I'm running a LinkedIn for teens, getting them ready for life after exams as they're entering the workplace and uh, getting ready for uh, apprenticeships and working opportunities. So, there we go. Right. Thank you so much, Claire. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. The 
Evening Standard reports that the Department for Education has announced new powers to shut down unsafe and illegal schools. The DfE admitted that its previous work on closing unsafe independent schools had been slow. Under the new powers, the Education Secretary would be able to suspend registration of a school where there were serious safeguarding failings which pose a risk. The suspension would be enforced through a new criminal offence where the school's proprietor would be held responsible if they kept the school open. The new legislation will be outlined in the Queen's speech next week, but has already been welcomed by Ofsted's Chief Inspector, Amanda Spielman. A school in Fleetwood has triumphed in an interactive literacy competition involving schools all over Britain. The Gazette in Fleetwood reports on the success of its Year 8 team from Cardinal Allen Catholic High School, who took part in the Word Mania 2022 event. The event was organised by Literacy Planet. Pupils from across the UK in Year Groups 1 to 9 were challenged to arrange words from a set of 15 randomly chosen letters in three minutes. Although students from over 2,500 schools across 68 countries were involved, the teams were directly competing against those from their own country. The competition was created to support pupils developing a passion for words and language. Schools Week focuses on further delays to the publication of accessible versions of the government's SEND review. It's almost six weeks since the launch of the Green Paper, but it has yet to be produced in British Sign Language and easy read versions. This has prompted comments that it has excluded some of the communities it seeks to support from participating in the consultation process. When it was published on March 29th, it was stated by the DfE that accessible versions would be available in early April. Whilst a large print version and braille versions are available, other versions have not yet been provided. Children's Minister Will Quince apologised for the delay in Parliament last week and said he was considering extending the consultation deadline to ensure all voices were heard. In Nigeria, Professor Patrick Lumumba, delivering the 30th anniversary lecture of Delta State University, spoke about Africans' need to embrace education to revolutionise the way they think. Professor Lumumba stated that the founding fathers of Africa had embraced colonial education, thinking it would end diseases, poverty and ignorance, but that instead it had been used to divide Africans. In his speech, he said colonials told us our language was primitive, told us that our gods were not God, but if we continue to worry about Africa, we will continue to make mistakes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, last week I told you about security certificates and how the padlock is not a symbol of a website being secure, but the transmission being encrypted. This week we go a step further and ask how do criminals use this against us? They use something called a subdomain. Just as the prefix sub means below or under, the subdomain is a key to this scam and it can look legitimate to the untrained eye. Subdomains are a way to divide a website into more manageable chunks. For example, for TT Radio, a subdomain could be named Listen. This would read www.listen.ttradio.org. This could be pointed at somewhere other than the main website, for example, Podbean, and allow simple redirection for the user of the website. The issue we face is cyber criminals understand subdomain system and exploit it. So if I were to buy a domain 
domain called bank.com and create a subdomain for all popular banks in the UK or even the world and obviously buy a security certificate. I could create copies of banks web pages on each subdomain and the address would read, for example, HTTPS, oh, it's secure, www.halifax.bank.com. The difference being you're now going to a subsection of my website, bank.com, which happens to be named after a bank. I now start a campaign of emails and texts with a warning to as many people as I possibly can. To make you panic and click without thinking too much, I also add a bit of time pressure into the mix. How does this sound? Halifax alert, you've just paid Steve Woods £500. If this transaction was not organised by you, you have five minutes to log in and cancel. I'm even kind enough to give you the link https www.halifax.bank.com. From there, I collect your login details and empty your bank. Clever, isn't it? How do we stop this? Always contact your bank directly, not through a link that is sent to you. If unsure, stop and think. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Right. Okay. Um, I read a blog yesterday, which conveniently came out a day after I had advertised my show on LinkedIn. Nevertheless, it was about team uh, conflict and it was basically just going through how um, obviously one bad apple in uh, a team uh, could ruin a whole team uh, and it goes through what team conflict is so it basically just talks about um, you know disagreements over ideas and opinions relationship based conflicts personality crashes or traits um, and he also goes on to talk about um, the things that you can um the practical ways you can manage conflict so for example conflict is part of the narrative and vision so it's part of the uh, forming norming storming uh thinking about carefully when you're you're putting a team together um understanding your diversity is a strength making sure that the right team conditions are available making sure team culture time and effort uh, is is um uh, is working effectively, making sure you're united uh, through your actions and your words, um, and maybe uh, making sure you've got framework and radical candor so you're talking openly uh, about things that are happening um, in your team, uh, addressing it and celebrating the conflict gains when you do actually move forward as well. Um, that article is on the internet for people to read and whilst it's great to hear the academic theory taken from different sources, uh, it's also good to hear from those who have actual experience. So my next guest has 30 years within the profession, to be exact. Justin Blake is in the 100 UK lead founder and director of Conscious Learning, connecting people with uh, aligned opportunities, unlocking potential and improving lives. He works with schools, organisations and education thought leaders across the UK and around the world. He's part of the team at ABBA Design and Global Bridge, and he's also a member of the Human Flourishing Programme at Harvard, working with CEOs, business, government and NGOs to create a values-led and purpose-first economy that is good for our people and our planet. Now, Justin also works with the World Leadership Alliance, which is the world's largest forum of 100 plus former democratic presidents and prime ministers, strengthening leadership, education, well-being, peace building and democracy that delivers on a global scale. His previous school was actually awarded School of the Year. Let's listen to what he has to say. Hi, Justin. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, can you just explain what your background is and what you do? 
Thank you, Sabir, and great to be with you. Delighted to join uh, your radio show, and uh, wonderful to hear about you know the the listeners, the network you've got growing, and uh, amazing to hear about the engagement over the last year or so since you've launched. So I'm really excited to be with you. My background is that I've been in education for nearly 30 years, uh, working across primary and secondary ages, both in the state and independent sector. Uh, I love learning, I love education, love working with schools and school leaders. Uh, The school I was in previously uh, was awarded School of the Year uh, for independent schools, which was an amazing uh, journey. And uh, I'm now working with uh, my own company, Conscious Learning Limited, uh, working with schools, uh, education businesses, and the social purpose business space, purpose, uh, purposeful business space. And also, um, I'm a connector. I'm an introduced, right? I connect people with um, aligned um, uh, partners, aligned customers, um, stakeholders. And I love bringing people together, convening, networking, connecting, and supporting good initiatives, particularly in the education space, and particularly around social impacts and around initiatives that are transforming lives and really making a difference. And that all sounds wonderful. Part of your work that you do is to develop future leaders as well, um, because as you say, you do work on a global platform and you created an award-winning school. So can you just explain for our listeners how you managed to create a, a culture and an environment for staff and students to thrive? In terms of how um, we had a school that was award winning, the the award for us was about our specific partnership work with state schools as an independent school. So we had this incredible journey where I was the chair of a foundation. Uh, It was a small foundation in terms of the people involved in it, but it was uh, one of those kind of ripple effect organisations that had, you know, a ripple effect and an impact uh, making a difference way beyond its numerical size. So we had a, uh, a foundation working in Africa, uh, working across South America and also across Asia. These were education projects that we were supporting and partnering with, including in sub-Saharan African slums. And uh, we took children from the school I was in at the time and from uh, local state schools as well. And, and some children from really disadvantaged, um, you know, diverse backgrounds Uh, age 12 to 15. Um, The children themselves designed over 100 uh, lessons um, and creative learning experiences for children in the schools that we were serving and supporting. We did that for multiple years. Uh, It was a so the children sorry to interrupt Justin did the Mm. children design the lessons for other children so uh, so you basically you were twinning right your schools were twinning internationally it was it was was Twinning internationally, but the children that we took from our schools and local schools designed and delivered uh, lessons, teaching, learning, uh, and also in a really creative uh, 21st century approach in ways that these children and staff, uh, school leaders had had never experienced um, or themselves kind of had had imagined. So it it was an amazing time of seeing our young people leading the teaching and learning in the classroom, um, but also in creativity, in sports and, you know, the whole curriculum um, and all the resources that we took, we always left them with those schools for those children, for the teachers and for the leaders. 
um, to enrich, you know, the experience and the learning uh, and the quality education for all of those schools and education programs. And it was an immense privilege. And many of the young people that we work with, um, they started those uh, global learning experiences with a view or idea of what they might, you know, become or do in the future in terms of the world of work. And often after those experiences, when we ask for their feedback and their thoughts and visions on their dream and their vision and their purpose for the future, many of those young people often changed their aspiration and their vision after those experiences and would say, I now want to become a doctor or I now want to run a social business or I want to be an entrepreneur or I want to be in government changing policy or I want to be a business leader but having a positive impact in the world. And I want to be a purposeful leader. So it's amazing how the experiences also shaped and transformed their vision and their future and enabled them to reimagine who they are and what they want to do in, to do in the world. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can understand that because when you are teaching students um, things in a, on a global scale, you do you do kind of bring in people from uh, different walks of life. Because I know when I'm teaching my students things about Amnesty International, for example, I'm bringing in mm. in from a global perspective, and and these are things that our students who are from disadvantaged schools don't necessarily have the opportunity to learn about and find information about so easily. Uh, and as as uh, teachers and educators, we must make sure that we're actually uh, bringing these things into the classroom so that they are aware of what's going on. Some of our kids don't watch the news, for example. So it's really important. Yeah, so it's really important to make sure that when you are working in a disadvantaged school, you are doing things like that. Um, really, really good to hear that. One of the things that I've always thought about, uh, and, you know, I, I'm going to admit that I've actually heard you speak on this before, but one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is about conflict resolution and forgiveness skills, because when you're a leader, these are some of the things, uh, these are some of the skills that you need to have. Can you just explain briefly, how can we develop not just our staff, but also our students, how to develop those conflict resolution and forgiveness skills? Because that kind of makes things, uh, you know, your culture and your experience of other people, you know, slightly better. Mm. It's a great question and something I really care about and I'm passionate about. A long time ago, when I was chair of the foundation I mentioned earlier, um, you know, and not every school has the opportunity um, to take students overseas to, to work in different countries um, and to uh, experience learning outside the classroom, you know, in such diverse ways. But at the same time, I was chair of that foundation. I was also supporting another initiative in schools that its mission and purpose uh, relates to supporting conflict resolution and mediation and reconciliation. It's a brilliant organization uh, called PeaceWorks. And the person that started that is actually now a CEO of a multi-academy trust that is growing and providing high quality learning and development of young people. It's, it's a really wonderful multi-academy trust. Uh, we engaged um, together, we worked together on um, PeaceWorks providing our young people with um, development around mediation and reconciliation and an element of that is forgiveness you know for our our own families and relationships 
it is so important, whether it's in our own relationships, our personal relationships, you know, marriages, friendships, family, or a professional working relationship, the team we're in, we're all human. Um, you know, we aim to be our best, um, or, you know, at the best of times, but sometimes, um, you know, we're not always um, showing up in the best way possible. Um, and no one's perfect. And so forgiveness is really important. So we were training children in um, forgiveness, in reconciliation, in mediation. These skills are great for them now, but also for the future. And um, it was fun. It was creative. You know, we use really modern film clips, great discussions and conversations and, and modeling examples and, and uh, you know, role playing situations. But this is also really important and helpful and useful for staff and school leaders and, and any organization or any context of working life. Let's also remember the power of the truth and reconciliation, uh, reconciliation commission in South Africa, that inspiring work that was led by uh, leaders like uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu and also the work in the UK of the forgiveness project, which is working with schools and young people, one thing I would say as well, it's really important as well as learning about forgiveness, learning about reconciliation and conflict resolution, particularly in, you know, in our diverse societies and our diverse communities uh, where we do have differences, different perspectives, different backgrounds, is to actually model forgiveness. One of the most powerful things that you and I and our listeners can do and to model is to say, I'm really sorry for what I've just said to you. Or if someone says, you know, they feel there's a conflict or, or disagreement, to hear that genuinely and to say sorry and to say, please forgive me. And the neuroscience around this is amazing. I listened to an incredible neuroscience um, story which was related to people who had their brain scanned. This person I was listening to, I've listened to a number of times and their research was also having their brain scanned at the same time as these other people. And the brain scans that showed up the most transformation um, led the people to say to that person, um, what, were you, what, were, what was in your thoughts? What were you thinking about when um, you were having your brain scanned? And the lady said, I was forgiving my husband because I suffered domestic abuse and different aspects of abuse for many, many years. And she said, when I was in the brain scan, I remember this and I was going back through my whole life, that relationship, uh, forgiving all the things I could think of. And the, the brain scan showed that up and it showed this incredible transformation. And when people forgive, the research and the evidence shows us that actually it really does have an impact on people. And it, it can be not just liberating for people emotionally, but also actually it can impact people physically. And even the medical world, the health world will say, as people choose to forgive, the benefits are for them as individuals, uh, emotional, but also can be physical in terms of the positive impact on their health. And who knows what our health service would be like if our government policies and our health service included forgiveness in our GP surgeries and our hospitals across the UK and around the world. 
Oh gosh, that <laughs> I was listening very intently there because yeah, I, I'm a big believer in forgiveness as well, especially um, when you're in a workplace environment and you have to work with people continuously. And this is a shout out to one of my leadership coaches, Diana Asagi. She really goes on about yeah. forgiveness as well. That as a leader, you really have to be, you know, forgiving constantly because you are the person in charge of all these people. And in order to move forward and have success success you need to forgive the little things as well as the major things but not forget but move forward as well so true and actually let's be open let's be transparent human beings let's acknowledge our weaknesses let's really grow together because we learn from one another in our teams and our workplaces but let's also be brave and courageous to forgive ourselves Yes, and that agreed. <laughs> is often not something that we focus on because forgiveness is sometimes viewed as being something that is related to other people and not about ourselves. And actually, there are things in our own lives and our own journeys that, you know, as we reflect on those, there is the opportunity to forgive ourselves. And that as well in itself can be so powerful. And so when we're in an organisation, um, as an as an adult rather as a member of staff rather than the students what mm. you know how do we identify the causes of conflict within the organization is it sometimes it's clear to see sometimes it's not how do you know that there's conflict in your organization and what are the common responses to conflict if you are in an organization many schools and organizations have got people development procedures and processes and great practice is to invest in people and people development. Some schools and organisations take a 360 uh, approach to their people development uh, and feedback. So one approach might be, and this is used in schools and you know, organisations uh, at this time, that as part of a staff review or a, or a development review, um, there might be um, other staff consulted on that individual's review and they might be highlighting um, some issues or some areas where that person can be supported to grow and be developed. And sometimes that highlights challenges, um, character issues, um, differences, um, disagreements, and conflict. So sometimes in a staff review process, it might be that um, a conflict is highlighted and helps to work that through. But also in um, everyday work, working opportunities together, you know, we have situations where in a team we talk openly and transparently. If, you, if your team is open and transparent, that's a wonderful way to approach working together. Um, and conflict might just emerge spontaneously where someone just says, I disagree with you. And it can be at a simple level of a disagreement, um, but it might grow into, um, you know, a greater conflict where you need to actually resolve um, that conflict. So we can disagree and we can disagree well and not everyone disagrees well. And that's such an important um, place to be if, if we can be in that place of disagreeing well with people and young people and children, whether we're teachers in a lesson. Um, and a young person disagrees with us strongly and has, you know, a, a particularly strong uh, feeling or perspective towards something that we've shared or, or that we're learning about. Um, 
in a school situation and there may be very good and valid reasons for why they do disagree um but if there's uh, beyond difference if there's a conflict sometimes we actually also need help to actually work that through and it might be that a third party or other people could be involved to really get to a place of good conflict resolution so i wouldn't just say only try and resolve sometimes things on your own yes. start with that but sometimes it can be helpful and sometimes necessary to involve other people too in good conflict resolution and in terms of um the different styles that you can use and the different approaches you've mentioned that you can use other people um as a leader is there anything that you should be aware of in terms of the different styles that you use Great question, and yes, absolutely, really important. Um, to help schools uh, create an environment and a culture for open, honest dialogue and conflict resolution, there are some excellent tools out there to help schools. Within our team at ABA, we're working with schools, multi-academy trusts, uh, leading independent schools, supporting uh, culture, people development and one of the tools that we use is with a partner organisation called HeartStyle and this is a people development tool which is absolutely brilliant at enabling people to develop their character and as we shift our character and our communication and our behaviours that can also help shift the culture and the conditions and environment that we're cultivating in our schools. And to do that at our best together, we do that by actually living it out. Not just learning about character and not just actually participating in a tool that can help us, but actually genuinely living out character transformation in our schools and organisations. That change is driven by leaders. So it's also really important that leaders are modeling conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Also important that leaders and teachers are also investing in our character and our development as people, because even with the very best policies and the best thought leadership and the best innovation around thinking and reimagining education and quality learning, it's actually who we are that creates the transformation, not just the skills and not just the knowledge and not just the innovations. So to invest in who we are as people and leaders and invest in our behaviours with organisations like HeartStars and there's many others out there um, is also supporting an environment for high quality behaviour and high quality learning. Okay, so... The other question that I wanted to ask you is obviously when you're in an organization, sometimes things happen um, and they're quite heavy um, and people get angry because it is, uh, you know, you're working in an environment where conflict does take place. Uh, how, how should people respond to anger in the workplace and how can you manage your own anger as well? That's a great question. Like me, you probably noticed that people seem to be more angry and <laughs> that whether you're driving your car, 
you know, you're just out in public. I was in a supermarket the other day and I just saw a lady just started shouting at another customer in a queue behind me um, really loudly, you know, driving your car. You know, people seem in our society these days and particularly post pandemic, you know, and coming out of the pandemic, people have been experiencing great stresses, mm. great challenges, yeah. great difficulties. When someone's angry, we don't often know what they're going through. I've been very fortunate in my journey, my relationships, both in my family and in my professional journey and career, uh, and my relationships to work alongside people who very rarely have I seen displays of anger in my professional career. Mm. Um, but when someone is angry, um, my first um, responses I wonder what they're going through so not so much how this is impacting me that's valid that's important because it affects and experiences we experience it emotionally and no one likes to experience uh, being shouted at or, or an angry outburst uh, particularly when it seems unfair and unjustified but to see through the eyes of compassion and the eyes of understanding and the eyes of empathy with a question in our own private thoughts of I wonder what you might be going through right now that may be a cause for why you're being angry so sometimes the issue isn't the issue and it's really important and wise to remember that that if someone has been angry towards you recently and you haven't yet had a conversation to talk that through with them it might be that they were angry because of something not related to you yeah the issue might not be the issue so I would always say to someone firstly are you okay um how are you and and sometimes the the anger is not actually um about the issue that first presents itself but sometimes it's a bit like the iceberg yeah there's the anger but sometimes there's layers beneath the surface and, it, and often in our workplace, we don't always talk about our personal challenges or family issues going on. And sometimes it's those things that we're going through privately that impact on our emotions that surface publicly. But it's not always the private issues that we talk about. Um, so I would encourage all of your listeners uh, to always see people through the eyes of compassion and empathy and ask questions like um you seem um cross or angry and actually to name emotions is really helpful mm. to name an emotion uh, calmly politely um there's brilliant work around emotional intelligence these days there is so much out there now for us to learn around emotional intelligence and how to engage emotionally um, and to name emotions is really helpful. Yeah, and I guess um, it's what you said earlier, having those conversations, the effective communication is really important and active listening. I mean, one of the things that I was told, and this was going back over a decade ago, was mm. that my I needed to improve my active listening skills. Um, so how listening. would, yeah, so how, how would we do that? How would we make sure that we're actively listening to our staff? Because sometimes in the day-to-day -day running of an organisation, it is, 
easy uh, not to pick up on certain things that are happening um, at the ground level. So how can we as leaders and managers make sure that we're using our active listening skills properly? Active listening, such a good question, so important. It's been said, hasn't it, many times, we have two ears and one mouth. And probably teachers listening to this interview and to your radio show have you know heard that themselves and um i myself am actually um learning about how to be a better listener i love talking i love storytelling <laughs> i love conversation but i want to actually be a better listener to people and be really present in the moment and not just present in the moment but present to the person i'm with present to you to be a present in this interview yes uh, and not present for ourselves, but present in the moment together for each other for one another um i heard some wonderful ancient wisdom recently uh which goes back thousands of years and this ancient wisdom is this and probably has been used in assemblies and PSHE and um, you know lessons and learning with children and adults around around the world uh, and I've heard it a number of times the ancient wisdom says be quick to listen be slow to speak and be slow to become angry if every time someone was talking with us and we were in a conversation in our workplace, in our schools, and we were attentive to the present moment. We were present, even with all the busyness and the challenges and the workload that teachers and school leaders are always navigating. If we were quick to listen and to be an active listener, and then also slow to speak, that creates such a wonderful space for hearing each other and not just listening, but also really truly being heard. And it's, it's been said, you know, through research and evidence that if people are active listeners and people are deeply heard as well as listened to, then in that space that's created, often that's what people need is people need to be listened to and heard really well. And they don't always need an answer or a solution or a suggestion of how to fix something, if that's part of the conversation. What people often need is to be heard. And I want to be someone who's better at being an active listener and who helps people to be heard. If we all did that in our world, what a world we would have and what wonderful school cultures and environments we'd have if children, adults were also, you know, brilliant at active listening and enabling uh, one another to be deeply heard. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think one of the things that I, I've also picked up over the last few years, um, especially with the pandemic happening, is like you said, a lot of people uh, <laughs> are very angry, upset, emotional, lots of lots of emotions all over the place. Uh, and that's for everybody, uh, because the pandemic has been quite difficult. And, uh, you know, having having the time to listen to people is very, very important because I, I know some of my students have said the same thing that they, they just appreciate the fact that they're allowed into classrooms and the teachers are just allowing them to speak about things and, uh, and communicating with people mm. uh, in that manner is, is such a, it's like taking a burden off yourself when you have got issues that you need to discuss. Um, I did some coaching recently uh, with somebody and she said the same thing. It was like a relief just to let it out without that fear of judgment and people giving you solutions or thinking about things. It was just literally you know, giving you the time to just, you know, offload uh, the things that you need to within reason, yeah. obviously. Mm, so Justin... So, Justin, um, in terms of education as a whole, what do you think the purpose of education is, uh, in your opinion? And what are your thoughts on the state of education right now? So what's good? What needs improvement? That kind of stuff. What's the purpose of education? This is such a good question and such an important question. For me, the purpose of education is to equip young people and learners to be to be really well prepared for the modern world of life and work and the rapidly changing world that we are all living in and navigating in but for me it's also equally about the purpose of developing people to be the very best they can be. So for me, the purpose of education is not pouring in as much knowledge as possible into a learner, into a child and young person, into a student. It's about preparing a young person really well for the modern world, preparing them with values, preparing them with their character, preparing them as a future emerging leader in the 21st century, and preparing them with skills, but not just the skills that we assume will be valuable, but preparing them with the skills that we know that they need and are required to thrive in the modern world of work. And actually a lot of employers, global brands, uh, world leading organizations, uh, national and global uh, companies, businesses and organizations acknowledge the exam system we're in and GCSEs, A-levels, the, the different uh, exam assessments that our system has. But employers are also looking nowadays for the culture and character fit for their organizations they want people of passion aligned around the area of industry they want people that have got great communication skills great emotional intelligence great social interaction 
can collaborate and work well. They want complex thinking skills and they want people to engage that don't just have good or excellent exam results. So for me, that's the purpose of education. Enabling young people to be equipped with skills to thrive, but also enabling them and supporting them to develop, to be the very best young person they can be whilst they're in our schools in the journey of forming them and supporting them to go on to become influential and significant leaders of social change in society in whatever space of passion and purpose and interest they move into in the future aligned to their vision and aspiration for their future. So Mike, I've got a couple of questions, Justin, because obviously we are talking about the future of education. And I think it's a debate that's been going on for quite some time now. And there's lots of different people saying different things. What would you say to those people? I mean, knowledge is important. Um, it is important. But what would you say to those people who um, who don't think education is preparing for a workforce in the first instance? And... The skills that you've mentioned, how do you think we should measure or assess those skills? So skills are important and knowledge is important. But knowledge that is valuable. When I was learning at school and then also when I was a teacher and an educator working in schools and now as the 100 UK country lead the 100. And, you know, we're working as the 100 community in over 100 countries in every continent, identifying innovation. And some of these innovations are around quality education. Some are around innovation related to technology. Um, Knowledge is in all of those, but we want knowledge that's actually useful and valid and valuable that's the knowledge I, I want to see in schools when I was learning much of the knowledge I was learning in my school time and my education wasn't relevant for the modern world of work so it's really important that we have policies and curriculum and learning that is enabling young people to learn knowledge that they will actually be using and will be relevant in the 21st century but I think this is where people, there is a, you know, people think differently because there are some people in education who don't think they're preparing students for going into the workplace. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit confused with that as well myself because why is English and math so important then if we're not preparing them for a workforce? Mm. What, what would you say to those people? To the people that are saying that education is not about preparing people for the world of work and employability. My perspective is that the majority of the world are employed, are in some form of job, are earning an income. You know, many, many centuries ago, we traded together, didn't we? You know, we traded skills, we traded talents, we traded things together. In our modern society, in our modern evolving world, the majority of people actually have jobs because we have a system that's been created where we have to pay with money and we have to 
create money to pay for the things that we use and that we have in our in our modern lives i i do understand and i do hear the view that says we are about developing people with character and values for society and a focus that's not so much on skills and the, and the modern world of work um but for me my my view of education it is about developing young people um, for all of life. For 100, can you just explain how you're improving education through impactful innovations like you've just mentioned? 100 is called 100 because it first identified 100 uh, leading innovations in schools in Finland. And many of us know that uh, Finland and the Scandinavian nations are doing some things really well. Finland itself has regularly in recent years come top in global studies around uh, healthy uh, indices of nations. And the data shows that uh, Finland is doing, some, is doing some things really well as a society. As hundreds, our focus is on identifying innovation. So in answer to your question, what hundred is about is we are about identifying impactful, but also enable children and young people to, fl to flourish and thrive. And we have children um, at the heart of our work. So our innovations are all about putting children at the heart of quality learning and education. And every year, we also um, showcase and spotlight 100 leading innovations from around the world. And it's a real privilege to be leading the UK 100 community for 100 and to be a 100 global ambassador with our growing uh, network of innovators and teachers, leaders around the world. Thank you, Justin. And just to finish off, what's next for you? What's next for me? What's next for me is life. <laughs> life the journey i i love the journey of life so for me i'm someone that is very future focused i love to you know have vision i love to um uh, support innovations new ideas uh, new developments and i love uh, exploring partnerships and relationships and opportunities and possibilities so what's next for me is uh, tomorrow thursday part of a character project conference tomorrow which I'm looking forward to and um, being part of a better, better education system and a better future, better world and a better planet. And I'm also really grateful to be for this opportunity to uh, talk with you, to have an interview together and wishing you and your listeners all the very best for the rest of 2022. Stay safe and well. Thank you so much for coming on, Justin. It's been absolutely delightful listening to everything you've been saying and hopefully we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thanks so much for that, Justin. Um, I've run out of time. I've actually gone over time. I do have a rant. Uh, I'm not going to go through it today. Um, and it's an interesting rant because I think it's actually a quite appalling uh, what I'm seeing and hearing. So I will go through it in another show main uh another main show when I've got more time. Um, next up we have Tom HB. Uh, coming up in the Twitter spaces, we've got Maud coming up and we've also got Tom Starkey this evening. Take care.
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.